Here's a quick editor's note before we get started. Brendan and I have decided that we are going to be doing a Tigris and Euphrates episode part two next week as a follow-up to this episode where we get more in-depth into the exploration of the decisions in this game. Uh, we kind of get derailed in this episode, as you'll hear, with quite a bit of arguing on both sides of the merits of this game. I think you're going to love it and find it really interesting, but do be on the lookout that next week, Tigris and Euphrates Part 2 is coming at you. Following that will be an episode where we will be answering all of your questions. So there's still time to get those questions in. You can do it on our Discord, on Twitter, uh, wherever else you can reach us, uh, our email. So do that. Send us all your questions and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. I'm Jake Friedman. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. Today, we steer the interdecisional spaceship for the cradle of civilization and delve into the decision space of Tigris and Euphrates a monumental title in the ludography of Dr. Reiner Knizia and a game that left a craterous impact on the board game community and just board games generally when it was released more than 25 years ago. We'll explore Tigris and Euphrates' design history uh, to provide a bit of context and then jump into its tensions, mechanics, and considerations all bound that make its decision space tick. Jake, I am curious. How are you feeling about this conversation? People have been waiting a long time for this episode. Dude, people have been waiting. We've been hyping up for a long time. I'm a little bit nervous, but I think just because, you know, this game has such an enormous pedigree, has such a passionate, loyal fan base. Uh, and it, as you mentioned, I mean, it really is like a pillar in the board gaming hobby that we know and love today. So I want to do it justice. I think we will. And I'm really excited to get in to the conversation with those nerves tamp down just a bit amazing well i'm gonna do you the honor we always like to give people an idea of where our scores for a game are so you have a sense of where we're coming at this conversation from what our headspace is so jake would you do the audience the honor of them hearing where your headspace on tigris and euphrates is first my kind of capsule review here is i hate this game at least that's what I think frequently when I'm playing Tigris and Euphrates. <laughs> I, there is something about this game that just absolutely triggers me like no other board game I've ever played before. And I think that says something about me. It also says something about this game. But at the end of the day, I think it's really cool that this game can inspire such an emotional response it's just not one that I like to see in myself. So I've, I have such a difficult place with this game. I played it so much. I felt really, really, really frustrated as I was getting through the initial learning curve, started to understand more, starting to enjoy the decision space uh, and feel like I have my arms around it a bit. And then something will happen that just triggers me all over again. And I go back to thinking, I hate this game. Uh, and I just rage and make it a bad experience for everyone involved so i don't i don't know man i'm gonna give it a 6.5 out of 10 it's a game i huh. think is incredibly interesting i think it's a great game but like i would be scared to play this with people in public because i don't like myself when i play this game 
Fascinating. Would you say that Tigris and Euphrates <laughs> is the board game that elicits that s- stark emotional response and anger more than any other board game you've played? I, I definitely do think so. I mean, and we'll get into why that is, like the mechanisms for why that is. Yeah, I mean, even like high stakes poker, high stakes card game tournaments, getting some bad luck, it doesn't hit me the same way as people just doing me so dirty in Tigris and Euphrates. Uh, okay, this is good. I'm going to do mine and then we'll we'll get into the, the meat of the conversation after doing a bit of that context and history back deep dive. Because I think that will be really interesting for people. And I think what Jake's getting at, this like strong emotional reaction that this game elicits in him is going to be really helpful for a, sort of highlighting some of the differences between the design aesthetics of Tigris and Euphrates and more modern games, which is very interesting to me. So here, here's my take. Tigris and Euphrates is a triumph. Its decisions are rich, interesting, dynamic, meaningful, and fun. It invites players into a land of shared objectives, conflict, bravado, cunning plots, and hubris, in which players have real agency and room to express themselves through play. No two games of Tigris and Euphrates ever quite feel alike. And Tigris and Euphrates, though, isn't a perfect game. It's, it has rough edges, potential for runaway leaders, and for meaningful and unfun skill gaps. And all of these edges look sharp in retrospect and will surely turn some off just like Jake uh, from its decision space. But I think those who venture and probe into the depths of the decisions offered in Tigris are going to be rewarded with this nuanced, interesting, dynamic, and compelling decision space that might secure its place in the ludological, ludological, oh my gosh, just totally butchered, <laughs> ludological board game canon for decades and decades to come. So I give it a nine out of 10. I, I absolutely adore Tigris and Euphrates. It's not a perfect game, but I think it's an incredible one. I'm surprised you didn't give it a 10. I thought this was a 10 for you. There's some, I think that there are things about the design that are, that show their age in an interesting way. And whenever I'm defending an interesting sharp edge on a game, it always makes me take a step back. Maybe this game would have been a 10 for me if I played it for the first time back in 1997 when other people were playing it. Um, but, and and in the past, it's lost that at one point. It's a 10 for a lot of people. And I think there's a lot, like yes. a sizable portion of the board game hobby where this game might be like their only 10 um, mm. just because of what it is, what it represents. But I think nine makes a lot of sense for someone who really loves this game because I think you can't get away from the fact that like this game just creates a lot of negative player experience. Like somebody around the table is probably not having a great time. I definitely think that that's true, but I I think that that can be a lot of fun so long as everyone's okay with maybe not having a great time every time they play. And it's a quick game. That's another thing. We're not talking about a two-hour game. We're talking about a 60-minute game. Usually. Usually. That's true. This game, for a little bit of background, designed by Dr. Reiner Knizia, it was first released in 1997 by Hansom Glick in uh, Europe, and then it was brought over by Mayfair in a little bit after that, like in 1998. Uh, to the United States of America when that first came here. So I wanted to just give, we're going to go even deeper into some uh, history later, but I thought it was important to talk about the ludography of Reiner Knizia and sort of say where this game fits so people can think about this game in the context of other games from Reiner Knizia that you might know, uh, and also other tile lane games of his, because this gets, Tiger Steam Freddy's often is sort of shown as the like crown jewel of his early tile lane games. Um, So again, Tigers and Euphrates, published in 1997. Modern art, 
one of his best known games, first published in 1992. Then he was on this kick where he was doing a bunch of auction games. Then you have Medici in 1995, High Society in 1995. Uh, then comes Tigris and Euphrates in 1997. Quickly thereafter, he does Samurai in 1998, another Thailand game that many people, though not Dr. Knizia, say are part of this trilogy of Thailand games, which included in that also comes Through the Desert in 1998. We'll talk about why he thinks they're not a trilogy, but other people call them that. Um, and then Ra is kind of the very well-known also Reiner Knizia auction game comes out in 1999. So that's sort of the meat of what he was doing in the 90s. And in a lot of ways, Tigris and Euphrates fits right in the middle of everything going on. He's messing with auction games and really exploring and building out uh, modern auction games. And then it's kind of stumbled into tiling with Tigris and Euphrates. Have you played uh, Samurai or others that kind of fit in here? Yeah, so I'm familiar. I, I own Modern Art and have played it a bunch. I have not played Medici, own High Society and love it. Played Samurai once, own Through the Desert and have not yet played it. Uh, recently purchased it and have not played Raw. And then I have played, I guess we don't need to get into sort of the future of Reiner Knizia games gotcha. as he returns to a lot of these ideas uh, later on. And I think that'd be better saved for a different episode. How about you, Jake? I played Modern Art once and I played Tigers and Euphrates and that is it. That is it. Okay. Rest assured, audience. Jake has played right Tiger City Euphrates. Um, and of course, Tiger City Euphrates is a two to four player game. Uh, so I think, yeah, that's kind of where we can kick things off. We'll go into more history following this about the development, and then we'll jump into the decision space. That sounds great. So should we, let's Wait, go. Wait, what about the rules? Sorry. Yeah. Boop, boop, boop. Brendan, let's hear your rules overview for Tigers and Euphrates a game that is maybe both more and less complex than you might be assuming it is if you haven't played it yourself. Tigris and Euphrates is a tile laying game for two to four players in which players build kingdoms by placing tiles of four different colors and special leader tiles to the board. In growing these kingdoms, they might share rule over a kingdom, a grouping of tiles with other players' leaders, start wars with other kingdoms, struggle for power through revolts, collect treasure scattered across the land, or build powerful monuments that provide income turn after turn. Played on an 11 by 16 grid board, Tigris and Euphrates' core gameplay loop resolves around adding these four differently colored tiles, red, black, blue, and green, to the board. Each of these tile types are distinct, and each player has special leader tiles that correspond specifically to these colors. Whenever a player adds a tile of a given color to a kingdom, the leader in that kingdom sharing a color with the tile added receives a victory point in the corresponding color. Players do not play a color in Tigris and Euphrates, but rather a symbol, and each player has one leader tile for each color tile in the game. On a player's turn, they may take two actions, and they have three types of actions they can take. First. They can place or move one of their leader tiles, so long as their leader is adjacent to at least one red tile on the board. Second, they can place a tile from their hand to the board. Or third, they can discard tiles from their hand and draw new tiles to replace them if their hand is empty or if their turn is over. Seated onto the board are 10 starting locations, each with 10 treasure tokens. These tokens act as wilds, giving the player a victory point in the color they have the least of, a very valuable effect. Because in Tigris and Euphrates, a player's endgame score is equal to the color of victory points they have the least of. Tigris and Euphrates test players on their ability to pursue blue, red, black, and green victory points equally. 
Players gain treasure by linking together two kingdoms that have a treasure within them. Then the player with a green leader in that kingdom removes the treasure from the board. Importantly, kingdoms may only have one leader of each color in them. If two kingdoms are ever linked such that they have multiple leaders of the same color in them, then an external conflict or war begins. Players tally up the color of tiles on their side of the kingdom matching the color of the leader in conflict may add tiles of the matching color from their hand to these sums. The player with the highest sum wins the conflict and removes their opponent's tiles from the board and adds them as victory points of that color to their score. Defense wins ties. If a player adds their leader directly to a kingdom that already shares a leader of that color, then an internal conflict or revolt begins. Revolts are resolved similarly to wars, but using red tiles instead. Another key rule is that if four tiles of the same color are ever adjacent in a square on the board, the player who placed the final tile may flip those tiles over, removing them from the kingdom, and adding a monument to the kingdom in their place. This monument generates victory points at the end of a player's turn if they have a leader matching the monument in the kingdom. For example, a monument might give black and blue victory points, so the black and blue leader would each automatically get one victory point in the corresponding color at the end of that player's turn. Wars, tile placement, treasure, and monuments are the four key avenues through which players can score points in Tigris and Euphrates. Players have to carefully assess how to build a winning strategy supported by the strengths of pursuing these paths without exposing themselves to the risks of each of these paths too much. A game of Tigris and Euphrates ends when all the tiles have run out or when two or fewer treasures remain on the board, whichever comes first, at which point the player with the most victory points in the color that they have the least of is crowned the victor. Thank you, Brendan. That was a great rules overview for this classic Reiner Kinesia tile placement game. And I know you are excited to dive deep into this game history, an even deeper dive than we typically do. And I know you've done a lot of research. I'm like here for it. Like I'm ready for your TED Talk. Welcome to your awesome. TED Talk. Awesome. Let's do it. Amazing. So I wanted to go back and look and see what I could find in terms of interviews or sort of other things about Tigris and Euphrates or just this time of design in Reiner Knizia's career. And it turns out uh, at this point in time, though not exactly shortly after, in the year 2000, uh, Bob Schwartz, a man by the name of Bob Schwartz, was doing a series of videos on the internet that he produced himself. They look a lot like public broadcasting videos, um, but I think they're just his own private studio that he was using to release videos via the internet about board games uh, from a United States perspective. So like before Board Game Geek was created or anything, there was the boardroom. And I did not consume this content when it was created, but I've sort of gone back and excavated it. And I know that actually uh, it was a big inspiration to a lot of the early, early users of Board Game Geek is they learned about board games through this uh, series, this video series called The Boardroom from Bob Schwartz. And what you would do is because they, YouTube obviously didn't exist for like almost a decade longer. So what people would do is they would download these videos uh, from the internet and then they would play them in their, you know, their real player or whatever on their desktop at the point in time because streaming video didn't exist. So I went back and they've all been uploaded to YouTube. We'll link them in our show notes. And I've watched all 10 parts of this uh, interview series between Bob Schwartz and Reiner Knizia. And it's so cool because they have a whole board set up and Reiner Knizia is not there. He's joining by phone because of course there's no Zoom or anything. Um, and they sort of talk about the game, the design process and the history. So I'm bringing a lot of insights from that phone call, that video series. Um, 
I think cool. most importantly, <laughs> that's fascinating. Can, yeah, no, cool, right? Yeah, it, it was really good, and I really recommend if you're interested in some of the things that I say, uh, go back and watch it. There's so many more gems that you can glean from it than what I can share, but we'll glean some of the highlights. Um, so I think the biggest thing that I found really interesting is that uh, Dr. Canizia, Reiner Canizia, started designing of Tigris and Euphrates two years before it was published in 1995, and the intent was to do a really epic game. This was supposed to be the most epic board game he'd ever designed. So that's like where his headspace is going into designing Tigris and Euphrates. And he wanted to do something historic and interesting that engaged with a real context. So he set off and he, the first thing he did was for an entire month, he just read history about uh, Babylonia and this time in ancient the fertile crescent of civilization, right? Along the Tigris and Euphrates. He read about the, the implications of political leadership and the role that the church played and how important early trade was uh, and how farms worked in the area and just studied the structure of civilization. Jake, did you think that Tigris and Euphrates would have started from this perspective? It's like, in, like I, if he said it, I guess I believe it. But no, I would not have expected that. Like it seems like playing this game, like it honestly seems like impossible. <laughs> well, but and I, one like, interesting thing is the more that like at first blush, that's how my impression. But the more I think about it, it's like, oh yeah, early trade, like all these things, like it is in this game. It really like it's all there. It's just so so. It's it's weird because it's like it's abstract looking and plays like an abstract game. But I know you're from the mind that this is like very a thematic game. And I, I, I get well, it like intellectually. I get it. But like emotionally, like when I like, like if I'm going from feels like, no, this look, feels abstract to me still. What's so interesting, too, is Reiner Kennedy addresses that in, in the interview. Bob Schwartz asks him about this and he's uh, Reiner at the time is talking about his coming Lord of the Rings game, which I don't know if you or other people know this, right? But he published this game called Lord of the Rings. It was a cooperative game that went on to inspire Matt Leacock to make Pandemic in a lot of ways. He played Lord of the Rings and was like, oh, cooperative games are amazing. Um, so Dr. Knizia, in talking about Lord of the Rings, said, a lot of people call my designs abstract, but I don't think of them that way. I think of them as adapting the spirit of the thing, that I'm not trying to, to make them literal. And he sort of goes on and talks about how there's two different schools of design where you can try to literally sort of simulate what you're doing. He doesn't use the word simulate, I don't think, but he feels that that adds too much complexity and he'd rather boil things down to a simple rule set that captures the spirit of what the thing is. And he, he thinks it's a shame that so many people call his games abstract for that reason. But it's so like kind of cool. It's kind of, it's cool. It's also funny. I just want to like, it's a little bit amusing, right? Because like not representing the thing literally, but representing like the spirit of the thing, like is abstraction, right? Like, like that is like, <laughs> like the definition of like an abstraction. Uh, I think that that's probably true, though. We end up with things in Tigris and Euphrates, right? Where like the farms represented not by green tiles, but by blue tiles, which could be confusing. But farms go on rivers because it's the Fertile Crescent and you have to build on the floodplain. So that's very literal. You can't build a farm anywhere. They have to just go on the litter, on the on the river, right? Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I hear I what think, you're saying. And I don't think like we get into need to dive into this. this like a lot on our in our discord about like what is an abstract game and like that is a whole can of worms that we like don't necessarily need to dive into but yeah i think like i think that a lot of 
the things that we consider abstract games in the hobby generally very much fit into that same categorization of like oh yeah it's like the spirit of war is like what we're what we're doing here um yeah so i mean certainly no matter who you are like this is falling somewhere on the spectrum and i don't think you're right or wrong for saying like this is a thematic game or this is like an abstract game uh but my feeling is that like devoid that context like devoid like the author's intent most people who sit down and play tigers and euphrates will feel like they're playing a game that is akin to their experience playing abstract games in the past more than what we would consider like a thematic experience definitely true but interestingly that maybe wasn't always the case so tigress and euphrates the first version took between three and four hours to play so about four times longer than it is now um, and Reiner Knizia basically said that there was too much material in there, that it was too complex, even though he had set out to make an epic game. Um, so a few things about those early so versions like I that I think are really interesting. abstract some of this away. <laughs> yes, basically. So well, one thing is that the, an early version forced you to only play in specific rows or columns. You couldn't place anywhere. Um, so there were more restrictive rules about how you would build out in terms of the kingdoms. And he thought that not allowing not having that restriction would prove to be too chaotic, that there would be too much freedom and it wouldn't direct interesting decisions for the players. And a big milestone in the design of the game was when he saw that it wasn't overkill allowing players to place anywhere. But then on top of this, oh, another interesting anecdote, and then I'll talk about the abstraction thing, but for three to four months, Reiner didn't touch any other games, which he he, basically, he says in the interview, basically, that never happens to me. I'm never designing one game at a time. So for him, Tigris and Euphrates completely uh, filled his brain up. I think he uses the words literally, this, this pursuit filled my brain up so much that I couldn't think of anything else for three or four months, which I think is amazing coming from someone who's designed 600 games over the course of the last 30 years or so, right? Um, it, this occupies a, a very large space of time uh, for him and his work. But so Jake, the early design also what led to it being so long and what led to it being less abstract is that every tile set had a tile color in the game, right? We have black, red, blue, and green had these special rules associated with them. So you kingdoms could become dictated by certain things, right? So like black are the people and the crown and a military dictatorship could happen if there was... Uh, if there are more military tiles than religious tiles, the red tiles in a kingdom, then a military leadership would, that's what how that kingdom would be run. And then whenever tiles were replaced, they just always went to the black leader. And we see a little bit of that left in the rules, but like a military dictatorship has gone away. And there were like these for all the different tile types. If a farm had too many black tiles, but not enough blue tiles, the farms, then the leaders couldn't feed their people because there were too many people and not enough farms. And that caused this sort of like power vacuum where you couldn't feed the people in your kingdom and it fell apart. So we have all of this complexity in the game where every single tile relationship and type has these different special rules associated with them. And he said that one, it took too long. Two, you were always counting. You had to count yeah. how many tiles of each color were in every kingdom all the time, which was a problem. So all of this gets stripped away and the monument system gets added for these sort of to be simulated organically, uh, which I think is amazing that this like really foundational system gets added in its place. When I was learning this game, I was a little bit frustrated by, and, and I sort of led with that, with the rules explanation about it being like more and less complex than you think. Um, 
Yeah. Because I was kind of frustrated by like for a game that looks like an abstract game, feels very abstract. Like there there are these like weird caveat and like carve outs of the rules where it's like, okay, but like all the tiles are the work the same, but have like these like little ex- exceptions. Um, you know, like the the red tiles specifically, I guess temples, right? Um, they they matter in like two or three ways more like that these other tiles do not. Uh, and it was it's kind of like hard to wrap my head around this system, which is like really a simple system. And I think like a lot of that is because of like perceived notions of that this is going to be more of an abstract experience. Uh, and it just, it does make sense to me. It's like how, because I think if you start out designing this game as an abstract game, a lot of those like caveat and rules exceptions like would not be there. So it actually makes perfect sense to me now to know that they're actually like these leftover vestibules of what was once a much more thematic game. Yeah. And I think Dr. Knizia probably thinks of them as thematic pinnings that if you know what's going on historically, they might help you like red being of undue importance in the game, right? They're used to resolve results. Uh, and you you have to constantly sort of we can talk about this in the decisions more, but you want to be holding on to some red tiles is because of that extra importance placed on the church in this period of time for these people in these civilizations, which I think is interesting, but ultimately kind of fails for you learning the game in this context, um, which is interesting. There's also other things that are just like game concession things, like the fact that whenever you have to take treasures from the corners. Uh, first when you connect two kingdoms i think that was another rule where you were like what the heck this is so many like but just like why yeah circumstances yeah um and so you have them for like these thematic reasons and you also have them because for creating pressure towards pushing people to the center towards interaction means you have to have this little edge case rule and i think that that's fair jake that i do think tigris and euphrates is a game that surprises me for a game that dr canizia who can make such streamlined games does feel like it has a lot of edges that games his newer games like babylonia sort of don't have yeah it's, um, it's strange it's interesting it's, it's really interesting and i think like it, it it sits in such a weird place too because it is a game that is relatively easy to learn it's not a gateway game it's more there's more complexity to it to that but it's not like that many more rules really if you think about just the rules overhead to something like Ticket to Ride. <laughs> like it's 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 more than that, but like I think it's probably like comparable in kind of rules complexity to like what we would consider like sort of your next step games, like your light medium games. But there are so like the, the there are other but it has this reputation of being this like really unapproachable thing, and I kind of think that's a well-earned reputation, but that has to do with how that simple rule set plays out over the course of the game. I think also an important thing here is just also Reiner Knizia games, the way they work, where he puts the game and how the game, I'm using the game here, not as the game literally, but the game as the tension in decisions that players have to make, right? What are the trade-offs that you're making? What are the, why are the interesting decisions interesting? That, that version of the game. I think in a lot of Reiner Knizia games, the game is opaque until you learn it through play. In a lot mm. of the games we cover on the show, you can read the rule book and you can say, okay, I understand the game. I get it. Well, right? like, I'm going to go understand. for the big kelp strategy, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like this is intuitive to me. I- I've read the rule book and I understand how, how it will play and where the tension lives. And I think in a lot of Knizia games, part of their magic is that they can only truly be learned through play. 
Um, totally. I think that's a big issue is that for people who want these like streamlined, easy to jump into games. And in a lot of ways, like I can teach you the rules of Tigers and Euphrates, but I cannot tell you what it will be like to play it unless we just play it. And then you'll learn as you go. And that's so much part of the fun. That's the creativity, the emergent decisions. That's everything I love about it, but it also makes it a little bit opaque. I think yeah. let's pivot to our normal conversation though, Jake. Okay, but yeah, and we'll get into more of that. Okay. I think that is a super interesting thread that we should follow up on as we talk through the mechanisms because it truly is one of the most, yeah, let's talk about the decision space. <laughs> okay, and maybe we can lead into talking about the decision space with one final quote from the interviews, which is the mark of a good game. This is a quote from Dr. Canizia. The mark of a good game is one that losing players also enjoy. I'm not sure that Jake falls into that category for Tigris and Euphrates. But and he's talking about this game? Did it, this game? He's talking about games, games in general. Games in general. <laughs> okay, so. Games in general. And so this can, game included. Yeah. I guess he thinks this yeah. is a good one. Weird. Well, he thinks... <laughs> Dr. Knizzi has also actually said in the past that Tigris and Euphrates, that time is has been kinder to Tigris than any of his other games. And that's why he thinks it's one of his best okay yeah. like people like still i mean it's his highest rated game on bgg where i wonder where it's sitting yes. right now because it's sort of been uh it got knocked off and then people were mad and then it got back on so i'm actually gonna do a little google search let's just see 97 hanging on okay so it jumped out of the top 100 and then people have voted it back up to be in the top 100 very interesting. but still to be in a, on a list that favors newer games, new hotness, the fact that this 1997 game remains in the top 100 is in, is incredibly impressive, to be sure. Uh, and, and the fact that, yeah, it makes sense being that it is his highest game up there, that that's just objectively true, that time has been kindest to it in terms of its perception by the hobby as, 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 think- as a whole, just to the extent that Board Game Geek ratings represent the hobby as a whole. Which is maybe not very much, but is at <laughs> yeah, least right. a little bit. Um, That's what we I have to, that, to look at. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I do think that one of the reasons for that is the enduring nature of how interesting of decisions that Tigris and Euphrates offers. There's a lot of games that have built their decision spaces to create a sense of uh, replayability and variability that no two games really feel alike. And I think in my for, for what it's worth in my take is that a lot of games after playing a game like Tigris and Euphrates, where you have really organic, emergent, dynamic differences in board positions that feel like they're inevitable to happen, right? Every game starts from the same starting positions, um, but because your hands are different and people make different decisions, every game feels pretty different by the mid game, especially to me. And I think that that's one of the things that is the most interesting to me about Tigris and something that makes this sort of like more new age take on variability feel stilted in a way. Like it feels so full of life to me in a way, the way that the board dynamically changes and the decisions unfold to shape these sort of growing and falling civilizations. And to me, that doesn't feel abstract at all. It just is awesome and thematic and cool to watch these little kingdoms grow and go to war and have power struggles. And because of a war, uh, there's a power vacuum that leaves an opportunity for revolt to happen where a leader swoops in and tries to displace another leader uh, and your dynasty is weakened. I think all of these moments to me feel incredibly interesting. And I feel like what is being simulated in the game is happening. And yeah, my headspace is there. My heart is there. And that for me is what makes Tigris and Euphrates such an interesting and awesome game. 
is it doesn't feel synthetic. And that is, to me, like the saving grace for a game that like genuinely I found myself just getting very frustrated with in a lot of the plays, um, you know, and which is not always like, like some sometimes playing a game uh, and doing really badly is like, okay, like now I know what I need to do better next time. And I want to like go at it again. Um, and Tigers of Radies like is so opaque that sometimes like you can just, you like you maybe have to play it and lose a dozen times before you start getting to that place of like, okay, now like I sort of know what I should be trying to do better next time. Um, but like, I didn't like, I don't know, like for you're like where, when you're playing this game, you're like, I'm playing this like temple to my kingdom. Uh, that's going to like strengthen it with these soldiers. Like, or are you like, because when I'm playing it, I'm like, I play this red to this space. That's going to give me four red here compared to my opponent's red. Like, I literally did not know that the blue tiles were farms. I just thought water. I was like, I put the water on the water space. You know, like, so, like, I'm not having this, like, thematic experience in my head, you know, of, of, like, rising and falling uh, civilizations, which, you know, this game is about and representing but i am getting really interesting and organic decisions in each and every play it just took me a very long time for them to even become interesting because it's like it's just so opaque does that make sense no it does and i have responses to both these things i'm between the two points that you are because i definitely think about like how the context of how a specific kingdom fits into the nature of all of the different kingdoms on the table and what that kingdom is going to do and what I think might happen to it over the course of the game. I think that it's hard for me to divorce how I make decisions in the game from thinking about how a kingdom might grow within the space that it has, what tiles and resources have already come out, where people's leaders are. I do think I think about it somewhat there, right? Like this is a growing kingdom versus this kingdom is like the center stalwart one that is the seat of power within the whole area. And I think that for me, a lot of that is because of the way that conflict happens and how important it is to the decisions in the game. Uh, But I'm not thinking about it purely thematically right i'm not like looking at a bunch of red tiles and saying like oh that's not like the envisioning church, the, the like very... in, in your theater of the mind yeah. it's like a battle is taking place and soldiers are like attacking each other you're Lustering. like one two three sure. four no. one two three okay you know right yeah, yeah yeah but i am thinking about the how these are growing and changing and being reshaped for sure um, totally but i'll also say i think that partially what you said about the learning curve being really opaque is true and i think true of a lot of games of Condensia of this style because because every game is different what is good and what is bad in a given game can be really variable right because you have these these pillars right there's the treasures that you have to really spread yourself and your kingdom thin you have to literally build in narrow lines to connect kingdoms quickly um to, to get them and spread yourself out which makes you weak to catastrophes then you have monuments which you have to build up a lot in one resource and then basically weaken a kingdom in that resource, making you vo- more vulnerable to war, to 
get the steady income stream or you have the route of going to war to get big points. And then there's also just placing tiles. So those are like the four avenues and different plays of Tiger Steven Freddy's based on all the different positions prioritize and emphasize the strength of those different avenues. So what's good in your first play might not be good in your second play, might not be good in your third play, which can make learning really difficult because you're sort of say, okay, in this game, this didn't work at all, but it won Jake the last game. What the heck? But at the same time, that's what keeps it so interesting is that what's good in this game might not be good in that game. And what you're really trying to learn is trying to learn which strategies are good when and why those strategies are good, not which strategies are good, which is a more interesting thing to learn and a more rewarding thing to learn in the end, at least for me. Yeah. I mean, I hear what you're saying hundred percent, but I think like that is well and good there are interesting trade-offs that i really like that are based on board position um but even and like i think the game we talk about feedback right like i i feel like feedback in this game is like given in like it's either like so soft and like almost imperceptible or it's just like like negative feedback is like just getting like hit in the head with like a bag of bricks, you know, like I've won, like when I was learning this game, like I, I've won games of Tiger Street Freddy's and not have really had any idea, you know, just kind of come away from like, Oh really? Like I won with six points. Like I didn't see, I didn't realize I was like doing well at all. And now I've won and it's hard to like take much away from that victory though. Mm. like in games that like I'm doing bad, it's just like, so I think, and I think that is like the, 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 my peak frustration is like with the battle resolution system, because I think that is the sit, you know, and I, I guess, I don't know. Should I save that for when we're talking more about that specifically? No, it's fine. Let's, let's talk about it now. Are you specifically though, talking about Jake to clarify external conflicts only going to war where it's done by looking referencing this shared color or are you talking about internal conflicts where you put your leader or someone else puts their leader into a ki- shared kingdom and then you resolve it with the red tiles well it's res- i mean i think both. what i'm talking about is both like the fact that we're resolving it by hidden information of bolstering our strength based on what tiles we have in our hand because i think that is the frustrating experience that i had that a lot of new players will have where it will feel like you're playing this game and you'll feel like you're attacking with overwhelming force and lose. And you'll also feel like you're getting attacked with almost nothing and have no way to defend yourself from it. So like, you know, I, I, like even in one of our most recent plays of this game, I think I attacked and I had like a, an advantage of plus five or, or it might have even been plus six. Like the only way I don't, win this conflict is if my opponent is holding exactly six red tiles in their hand and of course they were and then you know and then like later in the same game like somebody's like attacking me with like plus two green tiles and i just like don't have any way to defend myself in that situation and like good players are going to much more often than not be on the advantageous side of that like knowing when to attack somebody with only a small advantage is like a skill that is like earned by playing this game like over and over and over and over i guess i i haven't figured it out at all um and knowing like when not to attack somebody with a huge advantage 
you know, I guess is also a skill that like one would learn, but that is very frustrating when it's like you save up and save up and save up. And I'm like attacking with this huge force. And it's like, okay, really? They were holding six black tiles exactly. So I lose. And, and your game's like over at that point. Like it really fundamentally is. But in my experience, uh, maybe you can still like have a game where you score some points. But I, I found that like when I save up for a big play and lose, it's pretty much over. And then like by the same token, like, and then you're getting like, defeated by these like small little needling attacks that you can't defend it's just frustrating and there's like at least for me there's no apparent like like there's no lesson i can like immediately take from those usually where i'm like okay well next time i should have done this i usually feel like well that just sucked (laughs) like dang it i don't know I think that one thing that feels stands out to me as Tigris and Euphrates about Tigris and Euphrates is that when we play board games, we have this desire to feel like what is on the board that we have some ownership or claim over some piece of it. And in Tigris, everything that is in front of you, in front of your player screen, is not yours, right? Even your own leader tiles, their positions are transient; they're temporary. You you have you've marked a, a space for a moment. Uh, that is yours until someone else takes it. And you have a kingdom built of things that came from what you owned and put them onto the board that have made them communal. But it doesn't feel like that in the moment, right? Like your kingdom feels like your kingdom, even if you share, maybe I have two leaders in it and you have two leaders in it. I feel like that I kingdom mean, that I've helped build is mine. But yeah, yeah, it's but not I, from a gameplay perspective. I mean, I guess right? so, like, but that, my that's like the same the as like that's like the same as like any terri- territory control game, right? Like you have a like I'm in this space on the board. That's my territory. It's like no, it's not like technically yours because somebody could come in and take it from you. But like for all intents and purposes, I don't know how that's fundamentally different in Tigris and Euphrates than it is in like El Grande or whatever. I yeah. think you're building actual things that feel like yours is the difference between it with El Grande, right? Where you just have cubes that feel temporary. I think it's partially that psychology that's like so frustrating for you. And I also think that partially the game of Tigers and Euphrates, like, right, what what are wars specifically? Wars in Tigers and Euphrates, the mechanic, are the opportunity to take someone else's progress and say that it's yours, right? Like literally, like someone had to put those tiles on the board. And if you have create a position for yourself through clever leader placement, good use of the catastrophe tile, which is this like amazing piece of agency that you can use to completely reshape every decision made previously over one turn to consequent, like with great consequence, shift everything. We have to talk about it more. Um, I can just snatch up and eat all of the progress that you made and just get it for free in one turn, right? Like that's what the war is in the game, right? Like the opportunity to just like scoop someone else's progress and like put it in front of you and neutralize the benefits that someone else got and basically like time skip ahead a bunch of turns. That's kind of what it is. But the the risk of war is if you spend too much time doing it, you will lose because you spent too much time preparing for a war in one color when the game is being equal in four colors, right? The also, game isn't winning the most in one thing. It's winning the most in everything. Right. And also experience of like attacking and failing is like, then the rest of the people playing the game come and just eat you alive and just curb stomp you into oblivion, which is to me like, sure. Like, and that is so clearly incentivized in the game of, okay, somebody say I attack with a a big force of, you know, red tiles and I 
think, okay, great. I've got an advantage of six if I spend all my tiles because I have to do it first as the attacker. Uh, and then you lose. Then everyone else at the table is like, oh, you don't have any red tiles in your hand or not very many. And like, I'm like, you're, you're so incentivized to swoop in and just like, absolutely smashed down that person that already had this like unfortunate thing happen and like that happened almost every time like that like i've been in that situation and like to me may and maybe a lot of people are like this is so great like what a comical bad situation i put myself in uh but i think a lot of people like would not be having fun losing in that situation which is like the mark of a good game and i think like I don't know, man, like maybe that's just me being again, like I get frustrated. Like when I'm talking about this game, like talking to people about it, like when we're playing in the discord and that happens to me, I'm like, this really sucks. Like, I really hate that. Like this game, every time uh, I get, I lose a war that I feel like I had an advantage in, like everyone else comes and curb stomps me and I am out of the game for the remainder of the game. I have no chance of winning, but it just sounds, it's just whining. Like every time I like, I'm like, it's like, well, yeah, of course, like you're losing. So I, I even now like talking about this game, like I'm actively getting frustrated, like recalling those huh. experiences. And I feel like, do you feel like, like, I feel like people just hand wave that away. Like in all these conversations, like that's fine. Like that's the game where I feel like if it was another game by another designer that like incentivized this type of like negative player experience where it's like, Oh, once somebody, somebody like loses a conflict, like it's really smart. If you go and attack them right away, like people wouldn't stand for it. And I think because of this game's legacy, it just gets this pass in that regard that we would not afford other games that have that same type of like negative player experience as such a big component of the game. I'm going to take a deep breath and let you talk. No. Well, I, I think that there's a lot that factors into that too. And I think that there's definitely the games where it put you in similar situations where it doesn't feel good, right? But I think that Tigris and why people defend it is gives you the tools to play the game in a way that puts you less in that situation, less like where you're less likely to be in that situation, right? There's definitely things that you can do. You can avoid the starting positions in the middle and you can play more con conflict averse. This, the positions in the middle are really strong. There's reasons why people always flood to the middle. They're closer together, which makes getting early treasures more likely. The po starting position at N5 is like the best position to start at in the game because it's only it's adjacent to two river tiles, which makes it way harder for people to revolt in. So I think it pushes people towards the center. So you're, you're attracted to those early on. You're like, these are good positions. I'm able to observe that these are strong positions in the game, so I'll go here. But then it puts you in the center of the conflict, so then people start conflicts. And then I totally think what you're saying is true, Jake, about the war, which I haven't even been able to respond to yet, which is that like there are situations where you have made all the right decisions almost and you get punished for it. And that just sucks. It does, right? There is uncertainty and there is randomness in the game and you just have to accept and be okay with that. But there's also a ton of potential information to take in to make educated decisions about if this is the right time to be doing this thing, or if there's a better way to be spending your resources in pursuit of other things, right? Like how many tiles of each color have come out on the board already? How many tiles of a given color have I discarded? Do I know that I've discarded a hand of six green tiles twice or 10 green tiles? That's a third of the green tiles in the game. Then I can count on people maybe not having so many green tiles in their hands when I go to war with them just because of opportunities. And I'm not saying that 
those are fun decisions or you have to like them or that when it doesn't go your way, it's not fun. But I think that a lot of the things, the reasons why the hand-waving happens is that I think the game does equip players with the tools to play around these things slightly or even which I'm still really learning. And one of the things that's really fun for me is the way that you build your kingdoms just literally the way that you piece together tiles, like red tiles next to black tiles and like how I'm putting tiles such that I'm not risking that if I lose a war in a given color, it's going to rip the kingdom to to shreds and then be easier for more people to start wars and chew away at everything that I was trying to do. Right. Right. No, I, and I mean, like I get it to go ahead. I'll let you finish. Well, I was just going to say, I get it. I get how frustrating it can be to lose wars in Tigris and Euphrates, which is why I've become really war averse, right? I don't like revolting. I think it's super risky. It takes a ton of action. Uh, you like spend all of this red tiles that you've slowly accumulated all in one go. It feels very inefficient. And if it goes wrong, you've wasted a whole turn. It feels awful. And wars are super, super risky. And I try to avoid both of those things as much as I can and pursue what feel like safer strategies. But the trick is, is that there's no safe strategies. So that's like, that's the nut. Right. And then somebody like attacks you and you've been trying desperately to like get a hand of red tiles, you know, and discarding a ton because you need red and you're just not drawing them, you know, like, yeah, sure. Right. Like, I mean, and I, I think like, it's like in my frustration with this game, like I was really careful to point out, like the good players are not falling into this often. Like there is a yes. ton of skill yep. in this game. It's like a it's a new player problem, but even after like twenty plays, it's still a new player problem that I'm running into enough. And and it doesn't have to be you incentivizing the war, right? Like it can be that you know you're getting you're trying you're to play that defensive battle and somebody comes and attacks you and they do it at the exact right time where even though they only have an advantage of of two tiles like and you know they were coming for you like you just like couldn't get the draw the right tiles out of the bag or or whatever you know and do you again you have a lot of agency for drawing tiles out of the bag you could spend your whole turn like discarding 12 tiles so like again that that's not to say like okay this game is like too lucky but I just feel like the luck, like there is luck and that luck is so punishing when it is doled out and like the game isn't short. I mean, the game isn't long, but to me, it's also like not short enough to to be to the not be like really frustrated once you realize you've lost the game in the first, you know, third of it or, or half of it, which I think can certainly happen. And and when we've been playing two player games, when I was first learning it, like a lot, I've like had to ask you a few times, like, dude, like this is obviously over. Can I just like concede, you know? And it's like, yeah, I mean, that's, that's fine too. But it's also like not the experience necessarily people are wanting to have with the game. So I don't know. It's like, and that's where, like, that's my biggest conflict. Like I've had this experience with the game. It's become, you know, it's a game I think is really interesting. I think it's a good game, but it's also so frustrating. So, and it's like, you know, like I would never recommend this game to anybody. Fortunately, like I don't have to because it has this like, it has this like such a great uh, reverence in the hobby. It's on the top 100 list. But like, I think that a most, I think that modern board gamers like coming to this game today, especially if you're like newer to the hobby, like, Maybe if you're playing it with everybody for the very first time or whatever, but like, I don't know, like,
Like if you're going to a convention and you see you see three people playing Tigers Euphrates with a one more player wanted sign, like I don't think I don't know that you're going to have a great time with it. I think that that's fair, but I think that there's things about the game and the decisions that it offer that set itself apart. that are so far and away doing something different and interesting compared to what so many games today offer and are made that make it a game that should be recommended as something you should play just to see how you feel about it and how you like it. The flip side of that, if you were going to pick a game and have Three people, I think three people is like probably my favorite player count. Three people, you're going to pick a game that you're going to play 20 times. I think Tiger City Freddy's is an excellent game to pick that you're going to sit together and you're going to play 20 times and you're going to talk about it and you're all going to process after each game what happens. You're going to have moments that you remember for 10 years that were so shocking that this thing happened or it built out in this way. And how you're approaching the game on play five is going to be so different than how you approach it on play 15 in a way that's so wildly interesting and unique and something that's not like everything else that you're doing and that's i love that i can do everything else we've covered so many games that where that's not the case and i love them but i love that tigris offers this specific high agency high risk high luck and high skill decisions that it offers and it will always be different this might be like uh, this might be unfair but like this is the i was the analogy that you made me think of it's like to say like i would never recommend this game is too far but it's like it, it reminds it's like recommending like somebody should like read great expectations or like Frankenstein or something like that, where it's like, yeah, you should read these because they're like these great novels that are going to teach you something. And, you know, if you study it, you can really like appreciate the intricacies and the writing and, you know, what came after. But like if somebody's like, hey, man, like read any good books lately i'm not gonna be like yeah you should go check out like great expectations you're gonna really like have a good time with that one it's just it's not like <laughs> you should read frankenstein very shelly it's so good yeah but like is that, oh. is, that's what you're gonna it, it's like this game is not like it's it's weird because it's it's not weird like it's well deserved in the top 100 games of all time which makes it pop board game i guess but like it doesn't feel like a pop board game that i'm playing it that i i don't know it's just too it's too hard man it's too rough around the edges i think i think it's like too inaccessible to somebody if like who is playing a ton i don't know man (laughs) is it that inaccessible though i i feel like there's so many games where the the sort of like economic euro that i think that you're juxtaposing it to in your mind as like that's a kind of complex game like something like underwater cities that you invoked earlier I think that Tiger City Freddy's is way more accessible than that. There are totally. moments. I'm, I'm that so are on the be, opposite side of you on this. There's there's moments that are going to be devastating. There's moments that are going to be hard, but where you're going to make a decision or unfairly be put in a position to make a decision that just sucks for you. But I think that in a lot of ways, the gameplay is actually more accessible and the decision. It's so simple. Just play some tiles. Put, put two tiles to the board. This is what happens if this happens. This is what happens if this happens. Like, I can teach this game way faster than it took you to learn it just because of how opaque it is in terms of reading the rulebook and engaging with it. But I think that this is a more accessible game. It just depends on your what we're considering accessibility. Like, yeah, anybody can, like, learn the rules of this game and, like, put some tiles down, but are they going to get anything out of it? I think... I think, I think after... The joy of Tigris is yes, after 10 plays, absolutely. I think, yeah, if I had to teach this to like my parents who are not board gamers, 
I don't know. I think I'd rather teach them underwater cities. I think I'd, I'd rather be and like, I, this oh. is what a board game is today. I think they would get more out of that first because they're going to play it once. They're not. Yeah, I guess if I guess if I had to play one game 20 times with my parents, I would pick Tigers and Euphrates because it's shorter. But it, <laughs> but like it's just hurt with you a, coming out of your mouth with a short attention span, like, <laughs> a, you know, a single play opportunity. <laughs> If I wanted to like show somebody like what board games can be today, who is like genuinely interested, I, I don't like I would not pick this one because I, okay. I think it's just too. Yeah, I, I think it's fine, too. And I think like I think both things are right. Like, I think I totally agree with your point that if you had to pick a game with a group of friends, you're like we want to play board. Ga- we, we've played a lot of like Catan. We've played like 100 games of Catan. Like what's next? We're going to like play this three times a week you know, for the next semester at school, Tiger's Euphrates would be awesome for that. Like I totally put a board on the wall and tally who gets first, second and third every game. Oh my gosh. You're going to have over the moon. I I totally agree. And that says a lot about the quality of this game. And, you know, that's why it's like as much as like, I find it frustrating and a lot of the, a lot of like a lot of there, there's just for me, it was like a lot of negative play experience in the learning of this game, which is, that's why, it's hard for me to recommend it because I feel like because I had so much negative play experience, like why wouldn't I assume that other people would similarly find that when they were like learning this game? And that's not the type of game that I want to like recommend putting in front of people to like get people in- interested and like grow the hobby. Like, you know, like that's why games like Wingspan are like so awesome, right? You're going to like pretty much have have a have a good time. And nobody can stop you. And here, everyone can stop you. And then once you've been stopped, they just are going. You're just going to get salt in the wound, man. Well, I think that some other things we should discuss. Well, we because <laughs> I think we've tackled this episode differently than a lot of the ways that we. I know it's I think more con- like debate episode. It's okay. It's good though. It's good. I think another thing that factors into a lot of what we're discussing here that we'd be remiss not to mention is the fact that victory points are hidden information. That who is winning the game isn't known at any point in the game, because I think Dr. Kinesia didn't want you to have to count everything. And it's a design decision that I don't think a lot that he would make today. Um, And that I think factors into what you're saying too, because I think that there've definitely been times you've been playing Tigers and Euphrates that you're winning, but you feel like you're really losing. And that changes how you're experiencing the game. And it also makes it harder for you to observe when you made an amazing comeback. And I think that there have definitely been times I find myself saying or thinking, wow, my opponent or I just made an incredible comeback in this game of Tigers and Euphrates when I'm playing with open hands that I don't really experience as much when I'm playing with closed or open scoring versus closed scoring. And I think partially that's because there's like organic comeback mechanisms in some ways in the way that people are incentivized to create monuments because they give you income every turn that, but they also weaken you that create the potential for comebacks in really cool ways. And because the decision space is all about timing, it gives you the room and to make a mistake in a way that's kind of an unforced error because you don't have perfect information. So it goads you into making those decisions, which is really cool. But then it hides some of the consequence. Do you mm-hmm. prefer, Jake, to play it with closed scoring or open scoring? Generally, closed scoring is good. I think probably better for real-time games. A lot of our play, of course, has been asynchronously, at which case like I greatly prefer you open, like the open scoring because yeah. 
a lot of a lot of like the like you you just lose like the intuitive sense of how much of x somebody has completely if you're playing asynchronously sure because as you said you don't really own the tiles in front of you so even if somebody's like okay they must have a lot of green points because that position that might not even really be the case if they had done like a revolt you know on a turn that you just missed or something or, or happened like a long time ago uh, you know so they didn't yeah. get all which you can forget points. in person too you, yeah, yeah sure. for sure yeah you're not gonna have perfect information but you're definitely gonna have a <laughs> much like the asynchronous closed scoring games i've played of this i'm just like what the heck is going on here <laughs> you know uh yeah like, it, you're it making... feels like you feel like you're making more like random kind of chaotic choices like i think i can win this attack or whatever i don't know and i think it highlights the importance of what is an ecosystem of decisions at the table that's what tigris is right like my in a lot of board games you actually posted yesterday something really interesting you're playing silver and gold with your mom and she said oh this game's great because no one else gets to say i can't have fun um it's a roll and write game where no one can interact with you and tigris and euphrates is as far away from that type of game as you can get right like the fun of this game to enjoy tigris and euphrates in part is to be sharing a seat at a table where you're participating in an ecosystem of decisions. You can't make decisions based by yourself because if someone gets really far ahead, the only way to potentially weaken them is to make decisions together somewhat, right? That too, like incentivizes the importance of open scoring for async. I think that was also yes. some of my frustration with learning this game where it's like, if it's closed scoring, like I know I'm losing here and people like keep coming after me and now, like i'm like, like why you need to be stopping the other person but now i'm also learning as i played it more it's like actually like the incentives align for them to go after me if i'm losing because i don't have yeah if they have, big if you have kingdom. a small sandwich yeah yeah right it's easier to take it away and and especially in like a multiplayer game right it's hard to just a lot of times it's hard to justify taking a big risk to stop the leader as opposed to taking like a guaranteed or close to guaranteed like step forward. So I, I think too, like it's that like incentive structure I keep going back to that can be challenging. Definitely. Do you feel like I, I do think wars because of the way defender ties happen are riskier than you're getting them credit for, but do you feel like, you've made interesting decisions over the course of the game. Like, have you made a play where you're like, wow, that was really clever or that I didn't even think about that as an option that just happened. Has that happened to you in your series of play? Because for me, that's a lot of the joy of the game. Definitely. Realizing things about the system. It's it's not like a hundred percent accurate, but in many ways, I feel like this is an inverse of the game we play. We covered last week in great Western trail where like, I felt like it was like a really good game where like, I didn't really find the decisions that interesting. Um, and yeah. it's not its not really fair to like inverse it because I do think Tiger Sea Freddy's is a good game, even if I personally found it frustrating. But it was like a, it was like a game that I was like, Ugh, like I hate what's happening here. But no matter what, every time it was like my turn in the game, like I oh, you always have interesting choices. And like, yeah, like it is cool to see the different plays that can happen, you know, like there are cool like off the wall stuff like creating a monument in somebody else's territory to weaken their defense from like the back end so that you can uh swoop in with an attack and like the clever things uh that people do with the catastrophe tiles to like cipher off entire sections and 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 kind of give yourself an avenue into a kingdom that you otherwise would have been impossible very cool stuff and i think like the last part of the learning curve for me is like understanding how to use 
like the discard tile ability yeah, to cycle is, to speed up the game to cycle to speed up the game to like craft better hands like i think that is super interesting to decide like when to use that and when to use the catastrophe tiles because too when like you're when i'm first learning the game like i just have no you just have no idea what's going on like you said right yeah. you can't really tell them you can't really say like this is what you should focus on in this game so having like these two other things that don't immediately give you points. It's so hard to like in your first even like dozen plays I found of this game. Like it's so hard to wrap your head around like, okay, when should I like take an offbeat to do something that doesn't give me any points? Um, yeah. And without like having a super strong grasp of the game, that's just really, really hard to do. Uh, and again, I think that's like one of the things that like makes this game so like like kind of unapproachable in that way not in the rules thing but like in the strategy and decision space way and you might have turns right where you just like observe that it would be a really opportune time to move your leader to a completely different kingdom apropos of nothing it's just a good opportunity to do it so that's another thing that you're like constantly factoring in of like okay maybe this is the turn where i need to shift where this leader is move him to a new kingdom or her to a new kingdom and make this whole other decision can we talk about the catastrophe tiles and the cycling really quickly though because i feel like one of the other frustrations you might have with this game is that your all of your ways to interact on the board are like blunt objects like they're not that good at doing exactly what you want them to do in terms of like war or if you're trying to build out your kingdom in a specific way you might not always have the right tiles or you might right. literally not be able to cross a river because you don't have the right tiles like i've definitely had turns in this game where i'm like i just need to play a green tile here and it's perfect so i like discard my it. whole hand and i don't draw a green tile and it's just like yeah Dang it, it's happening again. <laughs> and then I'm getting pissed off at this chaotic random game and I'm typing <laughs> in the chat and everybody's like, geez, Jake needs to take a chill pill. Well, and I think that that's the thing about Tigris that's so hard is like being, you can't always do exactly what you want to do. You have to do the best thing that you have to do and you have to know it's the, the games now is the exact right time to do X. And it is a game about timing. It's a game about timing of when to build monuments, about when to just decide, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna force the end of the game by dis discarding my hand of six tiles to draw six new tiles to discard them again. And the game lets you do that. It basically lets you say, okay, I think I'm winning enough that I'm going to end the game for everyone. So in three turns, I'll have discarded enough tiles from the game that the game is just over because that's an end game condition is all the tiles are gone. So you can just sit there and be like, I think I'm winning enough. I'm going to call the shot that it ends. And I could see that rubbing a lot of people the wrong way, potentially too. But I think it makes for really interesting decisions, potentially. Where you, if it, it sort of says, are you sure? Are you sure you're winning enough? You don't have to do this. You could just kind of like write it out. But you get to take that risk. And then the catastrophe tiles. The final thing. Jake, these tiles are incredible. I love these <laughs> tiles so much. You get two. And they're basically like the fine scalpel with which you can carve the board to pieces and enact and force interesting decisions. But they're always, the potential for them is always being filtered over the course of the entire game. And if you use them too early and say a two-player game, you can completely throw the entire game because they're so important in terms of shaping the decision space and the potential that you can force yourself into a position where you can't undo a problem that's come up. And I think that that's really skill testing and really interesting, but it's also like you're saying, it's so punishing that if you mess up, it feels horrible. Like you can just throw a game away. Oh, I used this tile too early. And then yeah, that's a lesson you learned, you know? Right. And it, so all like that kind of brings me back to like, what might be a kind of a final place to kind of wrap up this conversation, which is like, 
this is we talk about like perilous decision spaces right and i feel like this is one of like the most perilous that we've encountered in the fact that like okay maybe you can't lose well i like can you lose this game on the first turn maybe like if you just no 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 but like you could put yourself in a bad spot i think so but i think you could probably play you could definitely put your okay like so you could lose you the game. If you don't put any leaders down, right, right. If you yeah. don't put any leaders, down, that would be really crazy to do. But I feel yeah. like it, it is a perilous decision, as you're saying. It's a game that you could be in, inherently out of if the first third Early. goes poorly. Yeah, I think the first third. Yeah. And I think all the yeah, and like like you're talking about, right? Like all the the because the game is so fundamentally built about around timing. Like anything that you anytime you like mess up that timing it's just devastating for you and it's i mean i think like we've talked a lot about the wars and conflicts that's like the clearest example of the feedback i think um but i don't know man like sometimes when i play this game it feels like i i make a move it doesn't go my way and it feels like i just like sacrifice my queen in chess and i'm like okay well that was my game and now I guess I just I, ride it out because of, I was wondering when yeah. chess would come up in this conversation, because I do think that Tyrus and Euphrates lies in the gulf between how perilous most board games are and chess, which is like one of the most perilous games. It, it, it's like chess is a game about not making mistakes. Ultimately, yeah. it's a game where you have to make perfect moves and board games are not that way. They generally guide you. And Tigris lives in the middle, but probably closer to chess than a lot of board games. I think they like the two are coupled in my head for some reason. And I wasn't exactly yeah. sure why until we had this conversation. But I think that's it. Like it feels a lot like chess, like when you get punished for a mistake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I forgot where I was going with that. I, I guess to close on my thoughts, I think that. Well, all of that is true. I think that the decisions offered, if you're willing to venture into as perilous of a decision space that it is, offers you so much more and so much that's different from a lot of other games, even in down to things of nuance that are so hard to just bring up in, in a conversation. Like I might, in Tigris, force a war that I'm trying to lose so that I can cycle the bag more quickly because I know that neither of us even care about the color of war we're fighting in because both of us have so many victory points in that color already that the consequences of the war don't matter. And I just want to more efficiently force us both to cycle tiles Right, And I know maybe you'll throw some tiles down and I'll throw some tiles down. So I'll cycle the game more quickly. And I think that that type of like thinking around how to use mechanics creatively in a game is so rarely offered in board games and is offered in so many spades here that it's a game that is so fascinating to explore and consider for those reasons. Um, I, I don't know. I love it. I think it's brilliant and I want people to play it and I want to keep talking about it. But yeah, I also appreciate that there's a lot wrong with it and it can feel a lot like a gross rash in some ways. Yeah, it's like it's hard for me to like say anything is wrong with it. Um, but I just think like I, I hope that after, after this conversation, I think people are going to have like a really clear idea, honestly, as like chaotic as this conversation was. Uh, if that if this is a game that they would have interest in exploring. And I think like, yes, you know, if. Like if you're somebody who like want and probably I we don't we really don't have that great of information about who our listeners are, but I imagine like the people that really like listening to this show are really interested in like kind of the deeper dives in games this space are probably the 
probably people that are going to skew to the side of enjoying this game um and at least like appreciating what's happening in it so you know if i don't i I definitely don't want my take to be like nobody should play this game like that couldn't really be further from the truth it's a game i'll keep playing um but like i would hesitate to pick it to play in person because of like it like because of the not negative player experience that it's like i just don't get to play in person that much you know, if I'm having like a game night, I kind of want to play a game that I feel like is more likely that everyone around the table is going to have a good time. And maybe that just makes me a filthy casual. Um, but I'll keep playing this online uh, where it doesn't matter if I'm just like raging behind my keyboard as long as uh, people can like put up with my frustration emojis in the chat. And I, I would know. posit that if we were going to play a game in person, I think you should stop playing it online. I think it's making you too angry. But I think if we're going to play a game in person, Tigris is a great one for us to potentially pick. Because I think that the the things that we would feel, whether good or bad, it we would feel things. And that's so exciting. <laughs> and there's so much that would be packed. In, and maybe I'll be the one on the under the table having a bad time. But I think I do have a bad, good time when I'm losing Tigris and Euphrates because usually I'm learning something. And because I can learn so much, I always feel like my game wasn't wasted in terms of my pursuit towards more strong games of Tigris. My final, 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 final thing. I think the fact that the game is built around these pillars of like, potentially get points from treasures potentially get points from war potentially get points from monuments the game could end when the tiles run out or the game could end when treasures run out that that creates such a beautiful uh spire of its own where the game is about figuring out which piece of the building is yours and how to make it unstable for everyone else is just so brilliant and this game design is what makes Knizia's games so unique and so special and so awesome and it's something we should continue to explore it's also there's like pieces of race for the galaxy in there with tom layman's two victory conditions i don't think that's an accident and i just think there's so much to be said and so much to be learned from games built in this way that create brilliant interesting dynamic decision spaces and next week we're talking about sushi go a phil walker hardy game (laughs) and that's not that's not a joke pre-planners we're going to be covering sushi go you can play it on Board Game Arena, we won't talk about it next week, but probably the week after. So we're going to go from Tigris to Sushi Go, and then maybe uh, uh, Downforce, a Michael Kramer. No, a Kiesling? Kramer? Kiesling? I forget who it is. I don't know. Yeah, to be to be determined on Downforce, but uh, next week we will be doing a What We Talk About episode. It's going to be a little bit different. We're going to be answering questions from oh, uh, de- thank you. Decision Space listeners. So there should, when you're hearing this, there will still be time. Uh, if you want to email us a question, that would be fantastic. You can reach us at decisionspa at gmail.com. Um, or is it, shit, is it Decision Space at Decision Spa. At no, gmail.com. Yep. Okay, cool. You can yeah, tweet us at, at decision spa on Twitter. Uh, send us a message or just tweet a question at us. Or, of course, you can reach us in our Discord where we're always hanging out. We have a channel dedicated for listener questions. There's probably already like 50 questions in there. It's pretty awesome. And there's some great questions. So it should be a very fun episode. Thank you so much, y'all. And I hope you have a good week.
All right. Uh, on to the next one. I think, did we survive this? Are we going to keep doing this show? Even though uh, you now know that I'm like a filthy casual that can't appreciate greatness. Well, we'll see.